I'm on the sofa with Chris Whitaker and Dom Nolan to talk about strong characters in fiction. Welcome, guys. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's been an exciting time for you, Chris, hasn't it? We begin at the end, just been long listed for the Theakston's Prime Novel of the Year. You've hit the New York Times bestseller list. And of course, we've just had that Disney news. Huge congratulations. You must be feeling pretty stoked right now. I am. I but but on the flip side, our daughter, we've got a 10-month-old and she's teething. So oh, she no. doesn't sleep. <laughs> so yeah, just yeah. like the walking dead <laughs> constantly. So you have to take um, her up with the smoother. That's such a hard time, isn't it? I would yeah, I don't, I don't envy you, but at least you've got a good book to read her to, to soothe her. <laughs> yeah, but um interestingly, so um my US editor phoned me to tell me that the book had hit the New York Times bestseller list, but I was trying to get my daughter to sleep, so I missed the call, probably oh, yeah. the best call that I will ever get in my life, no. and I missed it, and then got the email later, which was still amazing, but um, uh, yeah, so I'm going to remind her of that when she's older. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> hold her to it. Yeah. <laughs> and Dom, you've also just had some um, great stuff happening, so you've just been long-listed for the CWA's Short Story Dagger Award. Um, and when this episode comes out, you'll have just announced your latest book, Vine Street, which I've already had a sneaky peek at, and it's absolutely brilliant. Really, really loved it. How's um, how's that been to sort of step away from from um, a series to write something so different? It's it's been amazing, actually. Um, I was out of contract, so I didn't really know what I was going to do next. And then lockdown happened. Um, my book had just come out after Dark had just come out. We were in lockdown. I hadn't written anything, and it just seemed. I guess kind of the magnitude of what was going on. I just sort of gave myself permission to write the thing I've been wanting to write for a few years that I put on a back burner. And Vine Street came out of it. And um, yeah, it's all come together very quickly. So it'll be out November. So wow. in a few months. Yeah. And there's a lot, there's a huge cast of characters in that, isn't there? Which is a span. It's big, it's, it's panoramic. Um, it includes a lot of historical characters, real characters, as well as fictional characters. Um, it's based on real unsolved murders in the 30s in Soho and it goes through almost seven decades of the main characters lives trying to solve this murder so wow. yes, it's got scope just like a little little bit of you know easy <laughs> <Yeah>. right <laughs> that's brilliant guys um when you're when you're not reading um prize announcements and uh, emails with new york times bestseller info and <laughs> the old contracts what, what are you what are you reading what, what are you reading at the moment um, I am re I'm rereading The Road, which I do every few years just for inspiration. I'm also just started the I'm plugging all these books. I've just started the anniversary by Laura Marshall. Oh yeah, I'm longing to read that one. And I've just finished The Maidens by Alex Michaelides. Um, because the silent patient was so good. Did you read the silent patient? Yes, wasn't it brilliant? Yeah, I really want to see I think it's TV or film or I think it's a film soon. Yeah. Yes. It. Did you read it, Dom? The silent patient? No, I haven't read it, no. It's so good. It's like oh, it's it's a perfect thriller, I think. And I didn't see it coming. And I, no, I don't I didn't. Into, yeah, I don't go into them trying to see the twist because I don't believe that the book lives or dies on the twist or anything like that. You know, I'm, I'm along for the ride and very happy to be. But, um, yeah, I thought it was just so good. And it was almost the simplicity of it as well that made it so good, I thought, as well. Just Yeah. When, yeah. when, when you reread it and you see everything you should have seen, okay. that's the mark of a good... Yes. Comedy. Yes. You're kicking yourself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How about you, Dawn? What are you, what are you reading at the moment? I've just read uh, Leo Peruzzi's The Marquis of Bolivar. 
which is um, it's kind of an intrigue thriller set during Bonaparte's campaigns in the 19th century in the Spanish peninsula. Um, it was written in 1920, but it feels, I mean, it feels a bit mannered, the writing now, as, as that kind of modernist thing can. It also feels very contemporary. I mean, he, he wrote about stuff, I guess, kind of like in a Graham Greeny way, but several decades earlier. Um, and yeah, this this very very short, less than two hundred pages, but um, witty and uh, yeah, good good stuff. And I'm also I'm, I'm reading now um, London Rules, Mick Heron, the Slough House novel. I've been parceling them out like I didn't want to read them all in one go. Like there's still a couple I haven't read, and I'm sort of I'm always trying to wait until the next one comes out. So I've always got one in in reserve because um, yeah. they're so. Does that so with your child? <laughs> You'll never yeah. stop. <laughs> I could. I think I could read him writing about anything. If you write a novel about the telephone directory, I think it would be amazing. There are um, some authors like that, aren't they? For me, it's immature. Mm. I just and anything he writes, it's such like a sort of varied set of themes he'll cover. But it's just yeah. fabulous. And you know, Heron character. does stuff you would you would tell writers not to do, like if they were new. Like he starts all of his novels with this sort of introductory passage about the building, but he does stuff like he'll be a breeze going through the building. Like it yeah. sounds like a creative writing exercise that you do to sixteen-year-olds or something, and yeah. yet he makes them wonderful. Like they don't seem at all twee or contrived. Um, so he sort of snaps all the rules, but still. But that's succeed. a great writer, isn't it? It's like mm-hmm. being able to know what the rules are so that you can break them and to break them yeah, well. Exactly. Yeah. And what? Tell, I mean, given we're talking about characters, talk, talk to me about the characters in those books. What do you like about them? Well, the interesting thing about these books is the. I mean, there isn't really a main character. Jackson Lamb is the guy who sort of runs this revolving band of failed spies. But he's a character you never have any access to his inner agency. You never know what he's thinking. He's always told just from uh, the perspectives of the other characters. So you only really know him by those interactions. You don't know anything about his life. I mean, for entire, you know, four or five books I've read, you know nothing of, of who he is other than how he acts in any particular scene. And yet you know him, you know what he's going to do, you know what his behaviour feels like, mm. because Heron gets him in so quickly. Um, and he's almost a cartoonish, like a full staff kind of character in many ways. Mm. But he's also incredibly layered just from his behaviour, just from just from watching him. And I think there's there's lessons in that in how to draw a character yeah. with very little detail, just getting him right in a couple of sentences so that the reader although they don't know him like they might know a friend or or even a, a real human being of any kind, yeah. they still know in the fabric of the book how he's going to act. And, um, yeah, there, there's a there's a kind of genius to that. I think, and isn't that what that James Wood's um, idea as well, is was it how fiction works? He talks about, mm. in fact, you do that really nicely as well, Chris, don't you, when we begin at the end. So there's um, even just the introduction of Milton. I love it. Just like the broad brushstroke. So he's introduced as Milton the Butcher and almost just by that you kind of you've already got an image of him and then there's that but you'll tell it better than me but maybe you should but that wonderful anecdote um do you remember where he's um he's obsessed isn't he with radios police radio codes oh he is yeah <laughs> tell us that thing because i'll get it all wrong and you'll tell yeah, us no, but he gets it wrong as well so yes i know <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> he is kind of a wannabe he runs a neighborhood watch um in a town where there's not an awful lot to watch so he um and then he tries to use police radio codes and gets them terribly wrong. And it's it's a really small part of his character, but it does tell you quite a lot about him, I think. And you know, the fact that he tries to use them and he he thinks that um yeah. that he can and he can get away with it. 
Yeah. And like I think I said, it says just, a lot about walk as well. Yeah. But they illuminate each other in those kind of interactions where, you know, he's always getting the codes wrong and walk just quietly corrects him but lets it go. And there's, I think there's something of both of them in those short interactions. So they're yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Walk is kind of long suffering with Milton, I mm. think, because he um, has to, he tries to avoid him, you know, all the time because Milton is lonely and um, and looking for someone to go hunting with and things like that and reaches out constantly to walk. And walk is always looking for excuses. Um, and walk is someone that doesn't have a lot of friends, you know, himself, but still he would rather not hang around with, <laughs> hang around with Milton. Yeah. But it's funny, isn't it? I mean, that's an interesting point in itself, how actually your behaviours draw, uh, characters drawn out by behaviour, but also other characters draw your character or the other characters out of themselves. It's like the interaction is almost where where the magic happens and the characters themselves come alive, I guess. Yeah, I think you learn so much through dialogue, don't mm. you? I know mm. you're supposed to show, aren't you, not tell, and that's the yeah. thing, but um, yeah. you know, it's nice. It's also nice to know what characters look like, but you know, that can come from another character, the way they treat them or the way they see them or something like that. You yes. don't have to begin with a long stretch of, he looked like this, he was wearing that. It was, I do that. Yes. So it's not I break my own rules. Well, but then we all do. <laughs> but it's almost quite Victorian, I guess, isn't it? That whole Dickensian sort of approach to, you know, almost like an entire page of what somebody looks like, whereas now we don't. It's just, and again, yeah. thinking about Dutch, I can't remember the exact words used, but, you know, you refer to the clothes, the dirtiest mark on her clothes or something. And instantly that as well is kind of gives a sense of what they look like too if that, that yeah that's enough with duchess i think and then yeah. um, as the book goes on you learn a bit more about her and she doesn't you know they're very they struggle for money and she doesn't she'll give her food to her brother you know right so that he's full before she finishes her own and, and um, yeah. that takes a toll you know it, she is described as looking you know she's a bit too thin and she can look quite severe and she mm. yeah it's tragic really yes but then also, I guess that's a reflection of the character as well. That sort of hard, supposed look on the outside, but the softness on the inside. And it's sort of almost the characters then reflected in the appearance in that sense. Yeah. And but the, the, the soft in Duchess is very hard to find, isn't it? She doesn't she doesn't let you see it. You know, she um, she will go to great lengths to keep up that that front. But I wonder if that's almost the beauty of it. It's like she is trying to hide it. So as a reader, you're always trying to look through that veneer and then you see it in the way she treats the brother, I guess, as well, which again is, is the behaviour, isn't it? The interaction. Yeah, yeah. So you get this, she's 13 and, you know, I was always aware when I was writing the book that to hang an adult book on the shoulders of a 13-year-old girl, mm. it, you have to get it right. You have to get her right. And she, um, I just, there's scenes where, so she'll be she'll break a bottle and hold it against someone's throat, you know, that's threatened her mother. And she's very tough outwardly. But then you get you get the occasional scene like she'll be getting ready for her first prom and she'll be looking for a prom dress. And it's mm -hmm. those scenes that remind you that she's 13. Yeah. And it, it gives you a glimpse of the life she might have had, you know, yeah. or the girl she might have been had had the, you know, fate dealt her a better hand. So it's that balance. And how about you, Dom? Because, of course, when you're writing Boone, you're writing a character almost with no characters, weren't you, and that she was suffering from amnesia. And, I mean, that must have been pretty hard to... Yeah, to I mean, particularly the, I guess, the opening sort of third of the book. Um, yeah, like you said, I mean, I, I, everything about the character has been removed from her. Mm -hmm. And her memory loss isn't just a case of, you know, not being able to match names with faces or not knowing her husband's birthday or something. It's, it's radical. I mean, she has no idea about notions of personhood, how to be a human almost. And mm. things like, um, you know, in terms of how she identifies, either in terms of gender or, or sexuality, 
it's not just that she doesn't know where she lies on some kind of fluid spectrum. She doesn't know the spectrum exists. She has no idea about these things. So the, the entire process we go through, you know, in the first sort of 20 years of our lives has been removed from her. So she's almost in that sense like an animal that's been born and immediately walking around, you know, and has to deal with the world around it. Um, and the first thing she remembers is terrible violence. So these things shape her and she's almost got, it was tricky because I had to write it without alienating readers, I guess, which isn't something that perhaps I was 100% successful with if you read some of the reviews. But um, I had to, yeah, so I had to use her actions and, as we were talking about, dialogue, particularly using other characters to illuminate her, so her relationships with Rue and Tess and people like that. Um, and I'd, I'd made it doubly hard on myself because I wanted to write a crime novel about criminals mm. and not just people that become criminal by circumstance so this is a person who used to be a police officer was a detective but then chooses to live a criminal life she chooses to associate herself with career criminals essentially and, and becomes part of that culture um you know on a very sort of low down level um and that also you said you mentioned the likability factor which i think yes. is a big issue uh, particularly in crime fiction um so i had to try and make boone i likables i'm not even sure i understand it as a concept i think what people mean is they want some reflection of themselves in the character a lot of the time and i, I don't know i don't think writers should be interested in in providing that you've got to build the character for what they are themselves um mm. at the same time making them interesting if not likable and I, I didn't think, want yeah. to use sorry I, I didn't want to use because she's got a, a son 14 year old son and that would have been a shortcut, I suppose, if I'd made that relationship more sentimental, but I wanted to sort of make it devoid of sentiment because mm. she wouldn't even understand what that was. Like these yeah. were literally just strangers that she was parachuted into their lives as far as she's concerned. Yeah. Um, so by the end of the book, I think you get a more complete picture of her and she, well, as she's beginning to get a complete picture of herself. Um, but yeah, it was, it was tricky almost writing an absence of character to start with. Yeah. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because you, so you use the child almost to, to harden your your protagonist, whereas actually, Chris, you're using another child to soften yours and show a different side to her. So, so that's let's talk about likability. Actually, let's explore that in a bit more depth because you're right, Don. It does come up all the time, doesn't it? In reviews, it's you know people will literally say about a book, "I didn't like this book because I didn't like the character." Mm. Um, and as writers, will say, "It's not about like; it's about what's liking. It's about what's compelling." Chris, what, what do you reckon, readers? Do you think they're meaning like in the way that we're interpreting it, that like as in they want to be their friends, or, or do they mean something else by it, do you reckon? I think that they need to empathise with the character. They don't necessarily need to like them. Mm. You know, I'm writing people. I'm not writing characters in a crime novel. You know, I don't need them to fit into this box that that the genre, you know, decides or whatever. And um, I get so many messages, actually, about Duchess, about um, People that don't like her, but mm. a happy ending for her. And that's fine. You know, that means that that they've connected in some way. Mm. And um, they have a problem with their language that she uses and things like that, which I get. You know, some people don't like swearing. And but Is that an American comment predominantly, or do you? <laughs> um, it, it's a mix, really. So I'll do a book. Well, I've been doing a lot of book clubs lately in the US, and um, you normally get one person that has a problem with the language okay. um but it's I just never consider it you know going into it I never 
it's the last thing on my mind are people going to like this character you know it just it just doesn't register it just I'm telling a story you know we begin at the end is a snapshot of like a year in the life of Duchess and Walk just two mm. people you mm. don't need to like them necessarily you do need to care though I think you, you do, do need to care and that's yeah so again that goes to the point of empathy but then and yet readers still say like so maybe do they do they mean like or do they mean something I mean we're saying they need to care and I would agree with that but do they mean you need to care or do they do they actually want to I think it'd be like watching say you're watching a tv show and you hate one of the characters but mm. you love the tv show it's part of it isn't it Yes, it's part of the enjoyment of it, you know, not liking that person. It's 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 more difficult when it's a protagonist that you know. If you're because I know you both write series. If you have a reader that hates your lead character, it's not going to fly, is it? (laughs) No, is it going to prove difficult? But then, if you're a good writer and you're telling a good story and it's interesting, Mm. do you need to like that person? But look at Jay Skews, I guess, with Sweet Pea. I mean, she's not a likable character, is she? But she's she's telling and people you know she's there are a number of books in the series yeah but is there an enjoyment in that you know in that that you don't have to like her but you have to kind of root for her and yes which is interesting isn't it so you you can in fact I'm I'm doing a serial killer panel shortly and one on psychopaths it's the question I'm going to throw to those guys as well so heads up (laughs) Will and, and Ali and so on if you're listening um but yes how we do often root for characters that actually we don't like so for example one of my favourite um, books, You, for instance, mm-hmm. the, the main character is vile in every possible way, and yet you root for him. And you're, I've, I found myself sickened by myself for rooting for him until the very end, where actually you don't, only because the girl actually is <laughs> about to get killed, and you're like, oh, yeah. actually, I need well, to readjust that's, here. That's because there's levels, isn't there? You can yeah. delve beneath the bat. You know, the longer that you spend with someone, the less able you should be to put them in a box. You know, we 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 pick up the newspaper or switch on the news and we see the worst thing that someone will have done in their life without any context. If you were to read a story about that person or delve into their childhood, it wouldn't change the terrible thing that they've done. But it might change your perception of it. That's very interesting. So it's about rounding the character. Yeah. Don, what do you reckon about that? Yeah, that, that's a great point. And I, I, the levels thing is important because you, you've got to work it almost from both ends, because I think you have to get the character to work pretty quickly mm-hmm. like you don't have necessarily 50 pages to convince the reader that this is a character they want to be involved in you know even if they don't like them from the first page you've got to get them in in such a fashion that they were there with you and the character is i think it's important the character is understood if not liked mm-hmm. so if, mm-hmm. if you understand what the character wants you know why are they is there are there plausible reasons for for what they're doing whether what they're doing is good or bad and then you can spend the rest of the novel feathering that, you know, laying that. Like, uh, Ross MacDonald used to call it the wild masonry of writing. So it's, you know, it's how you build it. And it, it doesn't have to be neat. It doesn't have to look like a, a perfect structure. Um, but, it, but it ends up being complex by the end. Um, but equally, sometimes that first sentence where you mention somebody can be the key thing, just getting them in the door immediately so the, right, uh, the reader knows where they are with that person. Um, yes. so yeah you, you've got to attack it from both angles and how okay so let's look at that because I mean so much is written isn't it about crime fiction about character I mean it's almost if you look at the how-to side of things that's almost the, the biggest the biggest question possibly because in a way it's the most important how do you get a character in there's um I'm just going to read you this but I think this is, this is brilliant it's from um uh, the James Wood book how fiction works 
and he takes no personal story. And he says, he was a gentleman with red whiskers who always went first through a doorway, which to me is brilliant because you've got that, you know, the idea he's first through a doorway, so he's a little bit pushy. He's And yet, ironically, he's described as a gentleman. And I don't know if that's just the lingo of the time, but there's obviously the mm. contrast there. And yet the red whiskers, like the pulling out of that. So you've got you've got the visual image, but also you've associated something even kind of like we were saying with, with Duchess with, um, you know, dirt, slightly dirty clothes or how the thinness. Again, the red yeah. whiskers telling you something. I think, I mean, Maupassant was a short story writer, so it was even more critical for for him to get going and and get things motoring along immediately. Um, And I think, I mean, I sometimes wonder if, I I find short stories difficult. I think they're they're harder to write than novels. He says, having just been listed for the short story dagger. (laughs) I'm also amazing at them, go figure. Um, No, the amount of time I spend say, you know, per word or per sentence on a short story. If I wrote a novel like that, I'd be here until 2029 doing the next one. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I find people that are good at short stories, people that write short stories as a career, I'm in awe of them. I almost feel sometimes as a novelist, I'm a failed short story writer. Like, oh, I can't do that. So I'll, I'll spread out and take up a little bit more space on the couch. <laughs> um, and my books are getting longer, which I'm not sure is a good thing, but <laughs> I find as I'm going along, they're sort of increasing in length when... I like reading short things, so I'm not quite sure how to think about myself in those terms. But, um, <laughs> but I think there's there's interesting lessons from. I, I like when I'm writing, and you know, sometimes when it just isn't happening, not in terms of plot or the overall art, but your sentences aren't yeah. singing and they're not snapping. I like going back to shorter fiction, reading short story writers or even uh, poets, just to get that language going. Because I think there's in in brevity, there's a lot of value in, in getting things moving. Like the whittling down to the bare necessities mm. yeah yeah the brush strokes yeah and what about I guess the other side of building character and again it's like it comes out in both of your books is the sense of place so obviously Chris you've got and, and my geography is absolutely rubbish so if I say the wrong town here please correct me okay. <laughs> um, I when I was a kid I'd be driving I don't know wherever we went around these places in England and I'd say in the car oh are we still in England now it's like, yeah <laughs> we're still in England um, so yeah, so your books are set in Montana, which says question mark. California. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, so that's and I, I just saw a question. He's saying California is that Montana? <laughs> Note to self: consult an atlas or something. Um, but how much? How much does a sense that sense of place? And it's a wonderful sense of place you, you you bring through in the book. How how does that impact on the characters you write? You think, um, massively, and um, and we begin at the end in particular. Yeah. You know it. Um, just the level of research was years and years. I work in a library and I am, am forever just pouring over maps and travel guides and fiction and nonfiction set roughly where I want to set my book just so I can get a feel for how, how the town would be. But it's just so important to me to get it right. And I was um, I was nervous ahead. I was more nervous ahead of the US launch because it came out in the UK a year ago. And mm. then going into the US is, you know, I've written a book set somewhere I've never been. And yeah. uh, and though I've had an amazing US team, editorial team and copy editors and proofreaders and to catch everything, I was still nervous about it. And I did um, I did an event with the Montana Press and I thought they're really going to get me. They're going to find <laughs> something that I've got terribly wrong about Montana. And that would have just I would have been so upset about it. But thankfully, they were lovely. Yeah. Were just being polite. But they said I'd got it right. No. But it was it's just so 
in California, I, I created a fictional town called Cape Haven and, and put it down somewhere real, in a real location. In Cape Haven, I wanted to be a town that was perfect 30 years ago. So the book begins with the death of a child and then we skip ahead 30 years. You find out that none of the characters have moved on from that death. And you've got Walk who's looking back over his shoulder um, at this idyllic childhood that he had. Um, and that was the last time he was truly happy 30 years ago. So he he resists change in that town, you know. So if someone wants to build a new house, he will object, you know, not because not because they don't need new housing or that it would help the town. It's just because he has this mental image that he wants to hold on to. And um, and he's sick in the book, you know, it's no spoiler. He has Parkinson's and and the town kind of mirrors him, you know, every now and then the, the waves crash into a cliff and steal some of the town and it falls apart and he he can't grasp onto his um his life any more than he can the town. Um so it was hugely important. And then you get Duchess who that's her the only home she's ever known, but she doesn't quite fit in. You know, it's a town of surfer girls and she sees herself as an outlaw, you know. Right. This as it sounds, you know, she yeah. You think she's an outlaw and then then she gets sent to Montana and everything changes and um and she's forced to kind of reevaluate everything and and all of a sudden she's and someone described Montana as like switching from from portrait to landscape, which I loved. It's a line that makes it into the book. Yes. And and all of a sudden she's like this tiny girl surrounded by this huge expanse of of land and she um and she grows there probably, you know. But reluctantly and very slowly, yeah. she, she begins to relax slightly. That's really interesting. So place is almost a metaphor for the characters themselves as well, I guess, from what you're saying. Absolutely. And how, I mean, that's something I've struggled with. I've, I'm trying to write a book and it's, um, it's set in Salem and I also am not from America. And one of the things I've struggled with is um, is the way people speak, which is obviously different. So, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously we know certain things, you know, they'll say sidewalk instead of pavement, but also there's... there's um, the sort of the way of phrasing something, for example, that's obviously unique to to a place. Having having because I read somewhere you hadn't actually been to these places, which is extraordinary to me that you've you've sort of you know captured them so. I mean, it's almost like looking at a photograph when you read these books. You just absolutely imagine yourself in them. How do you how do you get the, the dialogue right in in terms of reflecting the place that you're writing as well? Um, time. There's no, there's no shortcut, sadly. Like we begin at the end, a solid year was spent writing and rewriting Duchess's dialogue, um, just a daily exercise. And um, I found websites where you can listen to people talk. um, You you can choose a town or a state in the US and listen to people read transcripts and you can pick up on speech patterns and things like that. How interesting for for our listeners. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we've got lots of writers listening to this. But what is the webcast? She says, pen in hand, ready to write. I, I did tweet it a while ago. I will find the tweet and if will you? I'll put it in the show notes or something. Yeah. That'd be that'd be I brilliant. Will, um, I will find it, but it's um, it doesn't give you everything, but it gives you a rough idea. But as for um, the language side of it, that is yeah. something that you know. Again, you're just going to have to put the work in and and yeah. and ask for a US copy editor or proofreader. I think it helps. Yes, that's that. Um, yeah. Because I always think, you know, I read a lot of them and, and I think if you, if you get it wrong, it just mm-hmm. pulls you out of the story, doesn't it's it? absolutely it's jars, right. isn't it? It's yeah, trying. It really is. It's almost, it's yeah. I it's almost like, you know, when you have American actors trying to do British accents and they're just a little bit too plummy and it takes you completely out of it and you no longer see it as, you know, yeah. taken into the programme. Yeah. But on, on the flip side, you know, we're not a different species. You know, no. a good character is a good character and someone you yes. can empathise with and we're all yeah. human and... Um, 
yes. I didn't get too hung up on it until later on. And then I got really hung up on it. <laughs> then, then you're polishing on you at the whittling stage. So I guess it's a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you're not necessarily changing the things that people say. You're changing, slightly changing the way they would say it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And how about you, Dom? Because obviously, um, particularly looking at Vine Street, I mean, that's again, the sense of place is huge there, isn't it? In terms of bringing out the characters. Yeah. Um, and weirdly, in, in, in different ways, if I, if I go back to the Boone novels for a second, because listening to Chris there was fascinating, um, because I I specifically wanted to write noir, but not in a city. So I, I went for Kent, um, both the South Coast and the Marshes um, near the Medway. And a lot of it was about mirroring ideas and concepts I had about characters, particularly because Boone has forgotten everything about what she is. And Kent's one of these places that you kind of think of as the Garden of England, but they had some of the biggest uh, coal mines in the country. Um, and they also used to have, you know, uh, shipbuilding, boat building industries. Um, their coastal towns used to be the big holiday resorts or among the big holiday resorts, you know, before everybody started jetting off to Spain. Um, so the identity of the county has kind of changed over the last half century. Um, it's, it's lost its industrial basis so that there are these villages that were built specifically for miners that now don't have mines so people can't move out of them because who wants to move into a mining village that, that doesn't have a mine there's, there's nothing there um the, you know the coastal towns have had to completely adapt to both fishing industry that was mined there anyway but going almost completely and uh, as a tourist resort that they're no longer the big draw they used to be so it's almost a county that's that's lost everything it was in its past as well um with vine street I'd actually, novels are assemblages. I mean, I don't think you can pick any one thing that's most important because they all reflect each other. So uh, for Boone, I had this, just the character of Boone as a kind of an elemental presence in my head, but I didn't know what to do with her until I married it with the concept of memory loss and then place in Kent. And and then everything came together and I knew what I was doing with the character. With Vine Street, I was originally setting it in Birmingham. Um, and in the Midlands. And it was about, um, the, there was a, an unsolved murder during the war where a woman's body was found inside a tree. And that wow. just seemed like such a weird incident that, that it seemed like a jumping off point um, from my novel. And, and like I said, this was something I was working on in the background whilst I wrote other books for years. And the inevitable happened, somebody else better <clears throat> wrote a book about the same murder. Uh. So I was like, oh, you know, stymied. You can't, there's, there's not enough space in that story for two for two novels. But whilst I've been developing it, um, I've got an interest in the nascent jazz scene in Birmingham. And that was the kind of milieu that I was setting these characters in because it was kind of wild and rambunctious. Um, and whilst reading about that, I'd got into the jazz scene in London in the 30s and just before the war and in Cardiff. And I'd actually tried to work out how I might tell the story in two different locations. So in a way, it was... Uh, Kathy Unsworth released a, a novel about it, which worked out better because obviously Kathy Unsworth, Kathy Unsworth, and, and she made much better use of the specifics of the story than I would have done. Um, it's an incredible novel. But it gave me, I guess, the freedom to then move the whole thing to Soho, which is a place I know a lot better, you know, having yeah. lived in London my whole life. Um, and it was a much, a sort of a, a bigger tableau because you've got London. So you've got Soho almost as a village within a larger city. Yeah. Um, and it, it gave me a, a, a proper neighborhood to set these characters in um 
But yes, yeah, so the initial concept of the novel is now gone completely. The characters came out of this other story, and then I sort of reattached them to something else, and then they changed, you know, in the process yeah, of doing again, that. It was almost of where you placed them. So we are, mm. the characters in a way are a reflection of the place, whether like Chris, you're yeah. using metaphor as well, or even just it's defining who you are because of where you're, I suppose there's an organism in a habitat, isn't it? I mean, you are you are literally adapting to where you are. So, sorry, I've been doing biology. <laughs> Revision <laughs> with my son. <laughs> Organisms and habitats, yes. Words of a writer. <laughs> Guys, I want um, to go back to something because Chris said about um, what characters look like, like when he mm. described them, and, and, and you know, used various levels of detail. What I found, I was talking to some other writers about this last night. I have no idea what any of my main characters look like facially. Mm-hmm. Like I kind of know broadly, you know, what kind of physical body they are you know because that becomes important yeah. in, in certain endeavors mm-hmm. but my editor's favorite question is always who's going to play this person in the movie or the film and i, I have no idea it's yeah. like i've got some kind of facial blindness for my own main characters because yeah. it's like living in a world without mirrors because you write them from the inside out yes yeah. so i hear them i hear their thought process i hear their voice yeah but i never see them do you find that's so interesting? Because I know exactly what you're saying. And with mine, I can see their body language. I can almost sometimes see their fingers and how their sounds. Sorry, totally naff to talk about those. But you can see them picking at their nails or all yeah. the stuff that you see when you look at yourself just as you're doing it. You're absolutely, or at least that, that's my experience too. I also can't properly see their faces. I mean, I have plenty of movie stars I like to play my characters, but that's different. Um, but yeah, and I wonder if it is because we are inhabiting their heads and you're looking out through their eyes rather than looking at them from the outside. Um, Sorry. Yeah. Just that we're having building work and the builder came to the door. So, oh, okay. <laughs> we didn't hear that. Um, so, guys, um, we're actually going to start to wrap up. I could talk to you about this forever because it's such a fascinating subject, isn't it? And like we were saying, as writers, especially for me anyway, the thing I often sort of think most about is how you're going to draw the character in a book. Um, but thinking of characters, and this is something I'm going to try and introduce at the end of all of my shows, and it's um, <laughs> very unoriginally titled um, Desert Island, Not Discs. So, if <laughs> um, yes, a marketing hat should maybe be readjusted there. Um, so in this Desert Island, not this chapter, which fictional character from any, any book, doesn't have to be your, your own, would you take to accompany you to a desert island and why? Chris, let's start with you. Okay, um, mine is an easy one. I would take Amy from Gone Girl because I know I know she's a sociopath and a murderer. <laughs> and, um, Apart from all that. <laughs> yeah, I just thought she was just perfect, perfectly written character. I love that book. I thought it was so good and I thought she was fascinating. Yeah, she is. So never mind looking over your shoulder and wondering if you're going to get stabbed. She's the one you're yeah, but it'd be <laughs> under the palm tree. Way to go, getting killed by Amy. Yeah. <laughs> Tom, how about you? I mean, part of me wants to think about practical considerations. I should bring somebody useful to me since I literally cannot do anything. <laughs> um, whereas I figured John Rambo might be able to build me a boat or something. Um, yeah, but, but the conversation, Dom. Imagine what, the conversation with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what I was thinking. Maybe I should bring somebody that I think is similar to me so I don't get that sick of them. Um, and I was my favourite characters often are fairly hideous people which might be a problem on a desert island, but I love like Morris Bendrix and the end of the affair mm-hmm. simply because the things that are vile about him are kind of things you can see in yourself and the way Green 
so casually describes the thoughts he has, particularly the thoughts he has about other characters, his, his kind of innate mean-spiritness he has, um, which I don't know what that says psychologically about me, that I want to be on a desert island with somebody like that. But um, I, I think, and I think maybe that gets to the root of our problem about likability that we were talking about earlier. Like, do people, if you think of yourself as a nice person, do you then want to read characters who are nice? Mm. Um, or, you know, that, that you empathise with in that way, as opposed to somebody different to you. So I like, I don't know, I'm not really a people person, so I kind of like those characters that uh, push people away. So, mm. so yeah, me and Morris on an island, we'd get on all <laughs> to each other, but one of the two. <laughs> That's brilliant. Guys, it was great. Thank you so, so much. And thank you for taking the time out to chat. I know, I know you're very busy and I really appreciate it. Thank you. You haven't told us who you'd take, though, Victoria. Oh, gosh. You know, I knew someone was going to ask me that. And of course, I haven't thought, <laughs> who would I take? Um, I would actually take someone practical. And I guess um, I would take Robinson Crusoe because he's been on a desert island for a very long time. And hopefully he does now know how to whittle a raft and light a fire. I might at least get dinner, even if I'm um, not getting anything else. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, thank you so much. That was brilliant. Thank you for having us on, Victoria. Sofa with Victoria at Crime Time FM. If you've enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes and join in the chat on Twitter using the hashtag OnTheSofaWithVictoria or drop me a line at Victoria Selman. I'd love to hear from you 